0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance enjoy um so today we are talking about the the myth of invulnerability and and to kind of this, to start with and i wonder if we can kind of contrast this with our, our talk last week um when we talked about the myth of helplessness um and I wonder, and this is all just extra, this is all extra credit, and this is extra curricular. You can write this one down. This can be one of your discussion questions um, after we're done. I was just thinking about this. Um, but what happens when we put these two myths in conversation with each, other, with each other? Like I wonder if, like on the one hand, when we talked last week about we have this myth of helplessness, this voice in our head telling us that um, we are helpless, that we don't have a strong support network. We don't have the skills and abilities to take care of ourselves, um, right? We have, we have this side, and then on the other side, we have this myth of invulnerability, um, this voice that says, like, we have to be um, protected. We have to be... We have to do what we have to do to be secure. Like, we have to become invulnerable. And I wonder, like, on, on face value, it seems like these two ideas kind of seem like ditches on either side of a road that we're kind of meant to walk down, um, but I wonder if like there's something deeper underneath that maybe these these are connected somehow I don't know. That's just a thought I had when I was writing this and I wanted to say that before we got to into this So you can, you, you can think about that or talk about that if you want feeling rowdy um, But let's so let's start our conversation about invulnerability by talking about preppers Y'all know anything about preppers? Okay Yes, I've heard, heard a few yeps. Okay, so there's like a whole sections of the internet dedicated to prepping. They have like reality TV shows on like TLC or Netflix. Um, just groups of, of, of people, individuals, who um, have are committed to this idea of I need to be ready when... Uh, everything falls apart. So like when, when shit hits the fan, I'm prepared. And so I've got buckets of freeze dried macaroni. You've got you know, ammunition and guns for days. Um, you have water, you've have cell phone or like solar panels on your roof. Um, you are prepared for when things go South. Um, and usually like, I don't know, I don't know what kind of catastrophe these folks are preparing for. I don't know. It's, it's, they're probably ready for anything from, um, collapse of the international banking system to like civil war to I don't know the zombie apocalypse whatever happens um, these folks are, are ready for it and um, I, I understand uh, where, where they're coming from and so here's here's where they kind of tie into our our talk about invulnerability is that when I think about the myth of invulnerability I don't think about a voice that tells me that I am invulnerable that voice is Jameson, right? Um, the myth of invulnerability is this voice that's telling me that I have to become invulnerable, right? It's this, um, it's, it's the, underneath that myth, there's this assumption that I am, I am vulnerable, that um, I can be hurt, I'm exposed to the world, um, it's dangerous out there and I'm afraid, uh, and, and there's probably some truth to that. Uh, things are wild out there. I mean, I have some things going for me. I am a, a straight white male. I've, I've like have. I'm playing the game on easy mode mostly. Um, but right, like there are a lot of things out in the world that are outside my control. Things like the like the economy, uh, government control. Like there's all sorts of like um, things that happen that are outside of my things that I can do anything about. And it's I think like a natural response to that is, is fear, and let alone like personal things, right? There are all sorts of like personal things that can come up that could also be just as potentially harmful as you know, like losing my job or something like that, right? Like like being alive is a scary proposition. Um, and so like there's so like it's life is scary. It's it's a natural consequence to want to protect ourselves to make ourselves feel secure and safe. Like that's like you deserve that as a human being to feel secure and safe. And so like with toxic people, maybe we put up boundaries, right? Or um, there are certain things we can do to feel to safe and secure. Like maybe like you you have like a, a first aid kit in your car or something like that, or you you've trained in, in, in different things, right? Like there's all sorts of ways. Like you you can do things to make yourself feel safe and secure, I think the myth of invulnerability comes when, like, it goes too far, right? When when you've crossed a boundary, when, like, setting up safe, healthy boundaries starts to look more like starting to actively push people away and starting to wall yourself off from other people, Um, I think the myth of invulnerability shows up. When, you, when you're when you not just collecting everything I need to be safe and secure, I'm actively hoarding resources that could be beneficial for other people around me. Right? So, like, so this myth of invulnerability starts in, like, a good place, the desire for safety and security, but then it grows beyond that to, like, this something else. Like, it becomes twisted and dark, and it becomes um, something that's no longer life-giving, but I think, you know, ultimately um, bad. Um, and so... I wonder if part of our hang-ups when it comes... So we have this idea of myth of vulnerability, and it really, like, it kind of pushes back on what's... Like, we can't be vulnerable. And I wonder if some of the hang-ups that we have around vulnerability come from our um, our descriptions of God, or maybe how, like, God has been presented to us. Um, so in the 13th century, uh, we had Thomas Aquinas. He's uh, he was a theologian, philosopher, And he, borrowing heavily from a guy by the name of Aristotle, uh, ancient Greek, he like had this idea of God being the unmoved mover. Aristotle had this, like saw the universe and said, everything is a series of cause and effects, right? So you have, uh, there's a cause and that has effects. And then those effects go on to become new causes for new effects and on and on and on. And that's He's like, okay, so that's how the universe is, this long series of cause and effects. And also, theoretically, we could trace all these causes and effects backwards to, like, an ultimate cause and effect. And so Aristotle um, said that, there, okay, so there's this perfect being, this being that is the uncaused cause, this prime mover. It is perfect. It is immutable. It is unchanging. It is eternal. And it's kind of like, it's, in a sense, like, disconnected from the rest of reality, and so Aquinas comes upon this, and he um, is trying to rash, like take you know philosophy and combine it with his own uh, religious beliefs. And he's like, okay, so this idea is God. God is this unmoved mover. So God is this prime mover who starts the whole universe and lets it go. And God self is not moved by any of this. God becomes the unmoved mover, and this God is invulnerable right? This God, like, cannot be touched. This God is, like, out here, up here, and away from all of us, and I wonder what that's kind of done. Like, I wonder if that's kind of like a, um, I wonder what kind of effect that has on our own ideas about invulnerable. If our own ideas about vulnerability, if we have this ideal, this idea God out here, and this God is invulnerable, if we're sometimes, like, maybe, like, trying to, like, model ourselves in this God, I don't know if that's the case, um, but it seems like it might be. Um, and another side point is, like, this isn't the only conception of God that exists in, at least, the Christendom. I know in outsides of other other worlds. Um, ideas I particularly hold on to are ideas of, like, open and relational theology. This idea that God is open to the universe. That God is not this stony-faced, um, fur, like, unmoved mover. But instead, God is is a part of everyday life. And this God is present in every single moment so instead of like this unmoved mover we have this the most moved witness right this god can be hurt at least i believe this god can be hurt because we can be hurt this god experiences our hurts with us so this god that i've come to believe in i find is vulnerable and that that to me seems more healthy um this god decides like once relationship with one's relationship with the universe. In order to do so, being in relationship then requires vulnerability. I don't think you can have relationship without vulnerability. I think even if we look at the most, you know, clinical of relationships, you would still have vulnerabilities. Anyone know anything about the double slit experiment? Yes, no, maybe. A lot of shaking heads. Okay, so the double slit experiment is a really cool experiment that helps explain how light is both a wave and a particle. So a few, this was in the 1800s, they first took, I wish I had slides. I would have made slides. This would have been much better with slides. I need you all to imagine a light bulb, okay? And then on in front of the light bulb is a screen, and in that screen are two slits. And then on the other side of that screen is another screen. Uh, Like just a flat surface where we are going to have light projected on it from the light bulb through the splits onto this thing. Do you all have that in your mind's eye? We got this? Great. Okay. Now, when we shine the light here, light goes to the two slits. And as it comes out, it comes out in waves, right? Now these waves interact with each other and you have constructive interference and destructive interference where like the peaks line up, make like a super peak. You have parts like the low parts made up and they make like a super low part. And so on this wall here, you see like a wave pattern start to show up. And they did this and like, oh, cool. Light's a wave. Awesome. We understand like it's waves. They're interacting with each other. That makes sense. And then they science evolved and Einstein comes along. He's like, no, no, no. Part like light is actually a particle. And then this is where it gets really trippy. They tried this experiment again, but instead of just turning on the light and letting all the photons go through, they just started like, were able to figure out how to do one photon at a time. Just bink, bink. And then what they noticed is when they didn't watch these two slits to figure out where the, the photon went, and they just watched where they landed, even one photon at a time, still over time, they sh- it revealed a wave pattern. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. The, what is the photon? It's not interacting with anything. There's no other waves there. It's a singular photon. Why is it still like manifesting like a wave? So that's where they got this idea of like light being this dual thing. It's both a photon and a wave. It's trippy. It breaks your brain a little bit. It's OK. Now, what gets even weirder, this is where it gets weirder. When you watch the two slits to watch which slit the photon went through, the wave function stops happening. It just stops behaving. The whole, f- the, the behavior of the photon changes entirely because now it's just like, oh, it's like a single photon. It's going through the slit left or right, up or down, whichever way you have it, and then bam, it just show up right on the other side of that. The wave function's not there at all. How the scientist interacts with the experiment changes the reality that shows up for this photon. Like, like the universe, The fabric of the cosmos itself is interaction and engagement, right? This question raised all sorts of weird questions of this, like how does consciousness work in the universe? How does like, like we don't know. It's weird and it's bonkers. Um, There's a philosopher, his name is Martin Buber, and he describes like humans primarily have two types of of relationships. We have I, it, we have I, thou, like I dash it and I dash thou. Thou mean like the old fashioned timey word for God or um, um, Shakespeare. Um, so I, it relationships are subject object, right? So we have a subject, me, I am a scientist, I am observing a photon going through slits in a double slit experiment, right? This is the most like, I-it relationship that we can imagine. Like, I am uh, abstracted from the, this object, right? I am separate. I'm a separate thing. Um, I-it relationships are defined by a sense of, like, I'm not connected to this in any real way. I can be abstracted from this. This is an object that I can use for my own my own use, right? I can, I can sell it. I can, dis- I can explore it. I can discover things about it. But ultimately, it is just an object in my world. Um, the I-thou relationship in contrast to that is, it is not like a subject perceiving an object. It is a subject perceiving another subject and knowing that it is being perceived back. Now, you can have an I-thou relationship, uh, Boober would say, um, with like another human being. You can have it with um, a, a moment. You can have it with nature. You can have it with music. You can have it with a physical object. It's any time that you come to a moment and you realize, like, oh, this is not just an object. This thing has depth to it, right? This thing has um, maybe some, something like subjective experience. Um, maybe this thing has, like, a history. This is something that I can interact with. Um, an interaction with an I-Thou relationship is one marked by engagement, is one marked by curiosity, discovery. It is dialogue. It is giving and taking. Uh, for Martin Buber, a lot of times these I-Thou moments, the, when we have these type, types of moments, we come come across as like religious or mystical experiences, where you're like, oh, I've 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 come across something that's like transcendent and divine. Um, so, okay, so what is this, What is what what the fuck does any of this have to do with invulnerability? You're talking about f- Jewish philosophers and, and quantum mechanics. What the hell? Um, so what, what these two things, to me, what these two ideas represent, this double-slit experiment, this idea that nature is fundamental, like that we interact with nature and it's not this cold distance thing that we can abstract ourselves from, and then Martin Buber's idea that things aren't just objects, Right, I think it shows that this prepper mentality that I can somehow cut myself off from everything. I can cut myself off from anything that would give me pain. I can cut myself off from anything that's scary. Like, that simply isn't possible. We can try, we can try, we can protect ourselves. After a certain point, we are doing more harm than good. We're like a snake trying to eat our tail. It's not, it's not helpful. So like, yes, on the one hand, Pull up boundaries that make you feel safe. Do what you have to do to take care of yourself. But also we need to know, like, at the end of the day, like, vulnerability is not something we can, like, protect ourselves from. So what do we do then? What do we do if we can't, like, run from our invulnerability? I think the answer is is to embrace it, to embrace our vulnerability. Um, I got permission from my wife to share some of these stories. So... Um, when when I when we we got engaged to be married, which is a fun way to say that, um, when we got engaged, we we decided we want to go to couples counseling, uh, to 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 premarital premarital counseling, and um, we went to a counselor. This is important. I recommend couples counseling to everyone. You should do it. Um, it's it's healthy, <laughs> um, and if anything, you're going to get some really fun stories. Like uh, one thing that Shanice and I discovered is that. When she is in conflict, she memorizes everything, right? She knows all the words that I've said. She knows the temperature in the room, right? She knows, like, she can tell you verbatim everything that both parties have said, and it's just like, it is just her response to, to like, heightened stress situations. I am the opposite. I am in a stress situation. I am currently in the process of boring a hole in the back of my head so I can just escape and just, like, slide on out of there, like, I disassociate. So when Shanice and I are having an argument, Shanice knows exactly what's going on, and I'm not in the room physically. (laughs) Like, I'm not here. And these are the things that come up when you are in couples counseling because, damn it, you're trying to figure shit out (laughs) because you want to have a healthy marriage. Um, And I smile, and she hates it because I'm just, I am, like, I... Like, I think I'm just trying to appease a predator. Like, I'm just like, uh-huh, yeah, everything's fine. I want to hide, like, I'm like Mike Pence. Have you ever seen pictures of Mike Pence in a meeting? Like, that dude, like, he looks like he, like, he closes his eyes, and he wishes he's home with mother. Like, he's gone. <sighs> um, Premonital counseling, y'all get it. It's good for you. Um, so, so Shanice and I go to pre counseling, and we and it, and it's it's hard, right? It's hard to be vulnerable with another person, right? Because like I've made a commitment to this woman, I'm like, oh, like I want to marry you. I want to build a beautiful life with you. I want to like experience all of this, but I can't have this unless I am willing to like open up the closet on the last 35 years of bullshit and begin to work through some of this stuff so I can figure out why we are having the same argument over and over and over again, right? Like, that's why you go to counseling. And through this process, I learned, like, for me, like, vulnerability, I just didn't, ha- I just don't have time for it. So I'm like, I don't know if it's, like, family of origin stuff. I don't know if it's, like, religious trauma. I don't know where did this come from. But somewhere along the way, I got... I, I started telling myself the story that no one is here to take care of my needs, and if I want something to be done, I have to do it myself. And so what that means, and also, like, throw on top of that, like, emotional immaturity, and, like, sometimes I don't even know what my needs are, and you take all that together, and you put it together, and you just, you just get an asshole. <laughs> um, and so, like, I, and, and it's, it's, yeah, like, I don't want to be this way either. Right, um, we sing that song with the Bleachers. Like I want to get better. It's my favorite song. It's so great because I love this line. where it's like I like I didn't know it was lonely until I saw your face. I didn't know it was broken till I wanted to change. Like you don't realize like all the hangups you have to work on until you're like oh I have someone to work on them for. Like that's that's uh, that's that's deep, right? And so for me, like I didn't see a point being vulnerable because I didn't have a, a I didn't. Understand, why, like, why? Like, that would open me up for, like, thy needs got getting met. Like, no one meets my needs but me. Why would I share them with another person? They're just going to get ignored and neglected. Um, yeah. And so that was hard, right? Having that conversation and and coming to that realization. But if I want to build the sort of life that I want to build, like, I need to learn how to be vulnerable. And that's that's the process. And this is the point in the talk where, like, a real... um a real pastor or somebody would have like a Bible verse that would admonish you all to go on and be, be vulnerable. But I, that's, that's not me. I'm going to say like, you can be vulnerable if you want. You can do it. Like, I think it's good. You should. Um, don't be a prepper. So like, you can't protect yourselves from all this stuff. So that's like on the personal nitty gritty, intimate level. Um, what does this mean for like communities, right? How can What does, this, what does it look like like uh, like community wide level? I don't, I think if we go back to a few weeks ago, we had Dr. Joshua Bartholomew here and he talked about Black Panthers and also all the movements like the Black Power Movement and all the kind of movements that like splintered off of that. We had this growth in these, these organizations who said, hey, what does it mean to actually like take care of ourselves, right? So if the, f- the myth of invulnerability is telling you I need to protect myself and the way to protect myself is to like wall myself off from my community, wall myself off from anyone who's going to be able to help me to like kind of protect myself. Um, as a community, if we want to counter this myth of vulnerability, I think it looks like instead of like atomizing ourselves and like little, you know, siloing ourselves off, it looks like opening ourselves up to our communities and building strong communities that take care of each other. Communities that show up for each other, right? So, like, you figure out, okay, where is our community vulnerable? What needs do we have, and how can we show up to meet those needs? So, for the Black Panthers, it looked like breakfast programs. Um, it looked like making sure that when people got pulled over by the cops, that they wouldn't be, you know, harassed. It showed up, like, in all sorts of ways. It, showed, it looked like them looking at the communities, figuring out what they needed, and then going from there. Um, yeah. I want to close tonight with my favorite story about communities showing up for each other. Um, and, and this is, um, it's, it's 1936, October 4th, uh, which is, it was a Sunday, it's October 4th, it's also 50 years before I was born, so that's exciting. Um, uh, and it's England, now, uh, on the east side of England, it's typically been like the lower income side of England, right, like the, the east side, and prior to this, the The uh, east side of London had um, a lot of, like, immigrants, folks lived there. So whenever, like, folks were fleeing oppression from other parts of the world, they always kind of end up matriculating to the east side of England. Um, At one point, a bunch of Irish Catholics fleeing... Um, genocide, basically in Ireland, they ended up immigrating to London. Um, w- later on, we had a, f- a large Jewish population moving in, fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe and Russia. They all ended up here, and so what you had is this: a whole bunch of neighborhoods of diverse migrant communities, like showing up, and they 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 weren't allowed to like. There wasn't a lot of like economic advancement, wasn't opportunities, so they just kind of lived there, and what happened was is in like the 1900s there was a large series of dock strikes and a lot of these Irish Catholics they were dock workers and this was along Cable Street and Cable this was actually where they made ropes like they'd run them down the street so called Cable Street and so these dock workers were all on strike and the strike went on long enough that like these dock workers couldn't take care of their kids and so the dock workers were also all friends with they, they had worked with um through, like, labor organizing previously with a whole bunch of Jewish folks in, like, the same neighborhood, like, the few streets over. And so they couldn't afford to take care of their kids, so they, like, sent all their kids to, like, these Jewish families to stay. And this was all organized by, like, a group of, like, Jewish teenagers who, like, organized, okay, how do we make sure these kids could take care of so, like, these parents can keep striking to get better, you know, uh, labor uh, and, and uh, wages and things like that. And so... A lot of these Irish kids. Now, fast forward 30 years. So it's 1936. And we have a guy by the name of Oswald Mosley. And he is a fascist. Like, he is an out fa- outright fascist. He starts the British Union of Fascists. Real piece of shit. Um, he's, uh, he's an out-and-out out out racist. And he's trying to start, like, a fascist uh, movement in England to go along with um, Germany and Italy at the time. And so he's putting together his march. And his routine was they do marches through uh, poorer, and, you know, more more ethnic, like, sides of town. And they'd go through, and they'd chant their, you know, their slurs, and they'd chant their, you know, their, their racism, and then when someone would get upset that, hey, you're marching down my street, and you call me a racial slur, and I'm gonna say something to you, they'd be like, oh, I'm the victim here, oh, look at me, and then they would feel justified, and, you know, being a violent jerk. And so, they had one of these. It was supposed to be the biggest one ever. They were expected like 3,000 of their, their fasci friends would show up and, and do this march. Now, these folks, right, so like they were getting ready to march through a predominantly Jewish neighborhood on the east side. These Irish Catholics who all grew up with these folks, they're like, no, like you don't get to march through our here. And so um, they, this all spread organically. Like this all spread through like people. There wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, they Anywhere between 100,000 to 500,000, half a million people. Now, London wasn't that big. London was only like 4 million, I think, at the time. So to have half a million people turn out to like, they actually fight Nazis, to fight fascists in your streets because you're like, no, you don't march through our neighborhoods. You don't march through our friends' neighborhoods, right? Like You're not even from here. Like You don't get to come through our town and say that these people don't belong. They helped raise us right? We take care of us. We stick up for us. I think this is what it looks like when we embrace our vulnerability, when we embrace our communities, when we are able to create places where we can be vulnerable. We can bring our needs and know that is in this community, like, our needs can be met. I think that's, I think that's important. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone.